spring is just around the corner. When does spring start? Friday. Great. Head of schedule. I like it. Well, good morning, everybody. I want to take the opportunity to welcome everybody. If you're a guest, visitor, regular attender, longtime member, I don't care who you are. I'm glad that you're here, and I hope that you feel a part of this great community we have covenant. And let me just extend a personal invitation to you guys for the Connect class. Uh, if you want to know more about our history, theology, kind of our DNA here at Covenant Church, just come on to the community life room down at the other end of the building. We'll have lunch. We'll have a great conversation. So uh, I just want to invite anybody who wants to come to that. My name is Ben Espinoza. I have the privilege of serving on staff here at Covenant Church. And for the month of March, we've been going through this series called Real Jesus. We're really trying to, to understand the unpredictable yet unchanging nature and personality of Jesus Christ. And we're doing this because there are a lot of bad ideas out there about who Jesus is and what he demands of us. And to be frank, we're we're sometimes silenced Jesus a little bit because, let's be real, you know, following Jesus is tough stuff. And we really want to correct those bad ideas out there through some good teaching and really expose you to what it means to really follow the real Jesus. And this morning, I want to talk about Jesus' concept of, of justice. We like justice because it's rooted in our nature as God's image bearers. Since our God is a just God and we're created in his image, it makes sense that we love justice as well. But sometimes our concept of justice is way off. Take this movie for example. It's on. You can see the laser pointer. There we go. Gladiator. Who loves this movie? Okay, a lot of people love it. All right. I like it too. You all know the story. Maximus, this powerful, well-loved Roman general, is chosen by the emperor Marcus Aurelius to be his heir over his son Commodus. Commodus doesn't like that very much. So Commodus, he murders Maximus, his whole family, tries to murder Maximus himself, but Maximus gets away, and he ends up being, becoming a gladiator, which is a lifetime appointment until you get killed in one of the games. And Maximus works his way up the, the, up the ladder and eventually kills Commodus, uh, gets his revenge on Commodus, but not before he succumbs to his own wounds as well. As one reviewer put it, the only desire that fuels him now is the chance to rise to the top so that he will be able to look into the eyes of the man who will feel his revenge. Now, a lot of us like that movie. We love that story. There are so many good stories about revenge, okay? You got like the Count of Monte Cristo. That's the classic one. You could make the case that the Italian job is, is something like that. Ocean's Eleven's like that. Mean Girls, if you guys like that movie. Kill Bill. More recently, House of Cars. And then there's this movie, too. I, I, I'm not going to pretend to do the accent, people. Um, you guys have your accents. I have my own accent, so we can just... We can just stop it right there. But yeah, hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father, prepare to die. It is a classic line from The Princess Bride. And what we love about these types of movies is that we love to see some pretty good entertainment, first and foremost. But we want to see the hero get his vengeance upon the villain. We want to see them get his revenge and arise victorious. But we know deep down as Christians that there is a better way. And a way that Jesus Christ has told us about. A way that we know is better and more Christ-honoring. So if you have your copy of God's Word, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. 
Now, before I read these verses aloud, I just want to be abundantly clear, okay? These verses don't apply to government policy with regards to protecting our nation. It doesn't have to do with self-defense or defending innocent people. If you want to have a conversation about that later, we totally can. But that's not what these verses say right here. Uh, So if you have any questions about it, see me afterwards. We can chat. But for now, let's read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. You have heard that it was said. There we go. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you'll illuminate your word to us, Lord. That you'll open our eyes and our minds and our hearts to the truths that you want us to know and understand, embrace, and put into practice, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So these verses I've just read to you are a part of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most loved, most quoted religious texts in all of history. And it's found right here in Matthew chapter 5, chapters 5 through 7. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about the kingdom of God and what occupying and inhabiting the kingdom of God entails. It's not a gospel message that you get in other parts of the gospels. It's a message from Jesus to those of us who reside in this new community. In other words, this is the king handing down a decree of what it means to live in his kingdom, which isn't made up of geographical borders, but spiritual ones. And what does it mean to live in this new kingdom? It means that we love our neighbors, that we pay attention to what's going on within our own hearts. It means that we don't live according to the standards of the world or the standards of our culture, but we live as citizens of this new kingdom where Jesus Christ is king reigning over all. And I encourage you this week, if you get a few moments, just to read through the Sermon on the Mount, because it will challenge you in your walk with God like no other text will. Now, this Sermon on the Mount, it, it's so dense and it's super radical. And we as Christians kind of have like an awkward time about it. This has gone back for millennia. We're, we deal with it in, in awkward ways. Um, back in medieval times, the sermon was viewed as instructions for clergy or for monks because it set such a high standard of holiness. Martin Luther basically said that the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount was to show how imperfect we are and how in need of God's grace we truly are. And other great thinkers throughout history have either thought that this was just some command on the part of Jesus to people to simply live a a good and holy life. Some have thought that the Sermon on the Mount depicts a a time in, in the way future Uh, where God's kingdom will be fully realized so we don't have to, like, abide by it right now. 
And other people think that the Sermon on the Mount is basically just good teaching, good solid moral instruction that shows Jesus' prowess as the master teacher, but not necessarily the Son of God. And before I go any further, I want to give you my own perspective on the Sermon on the Mount. I think we should take this as a sermon, as a teaching, that Jesus tells us that the kingdom, as Christians, we inhabit it partially here on earth, but we will fully inhabit it in the future once Jesus Christ returns. In other words, we do the best that we can to live up, for the, live up to the standards that are set up in this sermon, and, and in the sermon, and while this kingdom life will fully come to fruition when Jesus Christ returns to this earth, it's still our responsibility, our privilege to follow Jesus and obey these commands that he gives us in this sermon. Now, the passage we have before us, it illustrates the radical nature of living life as a Christian. And the first command I want to point your attention to is Matthew five thirty-eight. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. Now, when Jesus says, you have heard it said, he's referring to the law of Moses. He's referring to the Old Testament. And in this case, he's referring to Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, where it basically says that the punishment should fit the crime. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for a hand, foot for a foot, whatever. All punishment should be equal. Now, some scholars will say that this is the the oldest law in human existence. It's called the the Lex Talionis, and it's found in some very, very ancient codes of law, including the Code of Hammurabi. And this law applied to to judges who would oversee cases uh, where he would have to hand down justice in the form of equal punishment. Now, even though this was the official law of the ancient land and it applied only to magistrates and judges— people would take this literally and apply it to their own lives. So if somebody were to hit you and knock out a few teeth, your response would be, you hit that person, you knock out the same amount of teeth as he knocked out, and justice is served. That was how things rolled back then in the Old Testament. But what Jesus says is that if somebody slaps you on the cheek, let him slap you again. And it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Because the human response, the way of the world is just slap that other person back. Now, I've been there, okay? Somebody does something bad to you. Somebody says something that hits you just like right here. Or somebody intentionally sabotages something that you've really worked hard on. Or maybe even things get a little rough on the basketball court. Or maybe somebody kicks your golf ball from the fairway onto that rough. And you end up getting a double bogey in the par five. Makes you at, makes you mad, all right? It grinds your gears. One of my favorite inspra- expressions of all time is that it burns my toast. We all have our own things. <laughs> but what Jesus says is that regardless of any of that, you're not to retaliate with force. You're supposed to take it quietly and do the opposite of how you feel you should act. Now, like I said, this doesn't apply to self-defense. If your life or the lives of others are in jeopardy, are in danger, you have a responsibility to defend yourself and defend the lives of others. It doesn't apply to governmental policy. Romans chapter 13 says that the government doesn't bear the sword in vain. But what it does apply to is most other areas of your life. Verse 39, 
anyone wants to sue you, take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. It applies to legal affairs. Verse 40, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. It applies to political affairs. Give to the one who asks you, verse 41, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It applies to business as well. So people who inhabit this new kingdom of God and live into this kingdom reality aren't people who seek revenge. They don't actively seek justice for themselves, but they respond to evil by doing something good. Now, Jesus takes it a step further. In the next set of of verses, he says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. So that first step, it, it sounds easy enough. I can ignore that jerk at work that sabotages every single thing that I do. I can politely let that person with the Jesus fish slapped on their rear, rear bumper, I can let them cut me off on the highway, as angry as it makes me. But love those people, but pray for those people, but bless those people? What are you talking about, Jesus? The Bible never says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It only says, love your neighbor. And what people in Jesus' day thought, they said, well... If I love my neighbor, you know, the person that looks like me, acts like me, behaves like me, believes the same things as I. If I love them, that means I have to hate everybody else, right? But Jesus completely shatters that way of thinking. And he says, look, God the Father, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, are you not... Uh, What reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? So Jesus says, look, you're no better than your enemies if you hate those who aren't like you. And we show that we are children of God when we act the opposite. Because God is no respecter of persons. He causes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. And he causes the sky to pour rain over everybody without respect for anyone. And what Jesus says, he says, love your enemy. When he says that, I don't think he says, you have to love what they do, or you have to love what they say. Okay, sometimes when we hear this in our culture, that's what we think of. I can't love this person because of his past. Or I can't love this person because I disagree with their stance on this. I can't love that person because they're my enemy. And too often we tie people, their identities, to what they do, not who they are. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, when we see someone who struggles with alcoholism or a particular sin, God sees a child of himself who desperately needs him. You may see a thief, you may see a murderer, you may see a liar, but God sees someone who's desperately in need of redemption just as much as you are. And you've probably heard the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin. And with that phrase, I say, I love the thinking behind it, but I hate that phrase. Why? Because we tie sin and practice so close to identity that the two become inseparable. And it gives us license to judge people and discriminate. How about I hate my own sin? How about you hate your own sin? How about we just love each other, all right? Sound good? Amen? Amen? There we go. 
And that's what Jesus says. He says it doesn't matter who your enemies are. It doesn't matter what they've done or how they view you. What matters is your response to them. And that is love. And in some translations, Jesus says, bless them. In the Greek, that means you actually commend your enemies. It means you don't slander them. It's a total reversal of the way we're taught to treat people who mistreat us in our culture. One of my favorite moments of television, probably of all time, is when Jon Stewart, he's the host of The Daily Show, he was the host of The Daily Show for a long time, uh, he went on the CNN program called Crossfire, I think like 10 or so years ago. And if you're not familiar with the format of Crossfire, you have a, a conservative guy, and you have a liberal guy, and they just go back and forth debating all sorts of political issues, okay? Now, when Jon Stewart went on to Crossfire, it was during the 2004 election between George Bush and John Kerry. So the hosts of Crossfire would just actively, you know, take sides and throw dirt on the candidate that they don't like. So John Stewart gets on the show. He's a comedian, okay? And he tells them, like, very seriously, he says, why are you guys fighting? Why, you, why do we argue? You guys are tearing America apart. And what's interesting is he tells both of these people, both the conservative guy and the liberal guy, to the conservative guy, he says, say something nice about John Kerry. And, a, and to the liberal guy, he says, say something nice about George Bush. And they both kind of grumble, and they're like, yeah, they're, he's a good man. And that's it. Begrudgingly. And we're taught that in our culture, it is okay to bash and demean those with whom we disagree. But in God's kingdom, we're taught to love and speak well of our enemies. As Abraham Lincoln once said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? And Jesus, he ends this section by saying, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. That doesn't mean you have to be sinless. We know that that's not possible. But it does mean that we can shoot for perfection. The goal, or in the Greek, this word telos, this, the climax, the goal of this goal-oriented process is to be perfect like God, even if we can't attain that level of perfection. And what a lot of scholars will point out is that this singular verse, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, they'll say that this is the heart or the core of the Sermon on the Mount. To seek to attain perfection despite the fact that we are imperfect sinners. And how do we live that perfect life? We follow the commands and the way that Jesus taught us found right here in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, don't get me wrong. Grace abounds all the more. But as I've mentioned before, as Dallas Willard has said, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. By all means, strive to be like Jesus in every single way. But when you fall, don't worry because there's grace to cover you. Grace means that you can seek to be like Jesus, and when you fall, he'll be right there to pick you up. Jesus tells us to ignore people who push evil onto us and overcome it with good. And then he tells us to love our enemies and the people who actively persecute us, who hate us. And think of Jesus' own response to his enemies when he's climbing that hill on the Calvary. Pure silence. Think of how he treated people who persecuted him, who executed him. Think of all the insults that were thrown at him. 
Think of all the pain that was inflicted upon him. He loved his enemies until the end. He even prayed for them. He was perfect. So what does this all mean? I think for starters, let me say that Christianity is both just and unjust. Our faith rests on the foundation of justice, but also injustice. Let me elaborate on that. As Christians, we're taught to do good and to do what is right and what is just and what is holy. Like it says in Micah 6, 8, I've shown you what is good. What do I require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We read in James, true and pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, that we take care of widows and orphans in their affliction and keep ourselves unstained, unspotted from the world. Christianity teaches us that we should do right and do justice and seek justice for people who have been treated poorly. But it's also an unjust religion. Our faith is based on a man who suffered the death penalty because he told the truth. And you know, that was the father's plan all along to send his own son to die this horrible, gruesome death so that people like us who don't deserve anything could have abundant, eternal life with God the Father. There's no justice in that by any means. And yet, that's who we are. We're bought with a price. And the cool thing is that we have a God who transcends our own understanding of what is just. And that leads me to my next point. Following Jesus means we leave the justice to God. Think of Inigo Montoya, okay? He spent his whole life practicing fencing so he can take down the six-fingered man, you know? He can avenge the death of his father and finally get his revenge. But to live in that kind of anger and that kind of desire for, for vengeance your whole life, it isn't healthy, Everyone knows that living in that kind of anger affects your daily life and not for the better. It clouds your judgment. It causes you to think irrationally about things. And it just takes over your whole life. And in a sense, it can become an idol, something that you worship. And Paul even says this in Romans 12. He says, don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. When we harbor anger toward people who wrong us, implicitly what we're saying to God is we don't trust you to solve our situation. We tell God that our sense of justice is more correct than his. It's more fair. For me to see my enemy suffer is justice. But that's not what God says. He says, vengeance is mine. Leave it up to me. I will repay To leave justice up to God is an act of faith, and it may be challenging, but no one ever said that following Jesus wouldn't be challenging. And it's especially challenging in this regard. So following Jesus means that we'll leave the justice up to God. Another point I want to make is that following Jesus means we focus on doing good for the benefit of it all. Let me read that whole passage from Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, Don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Don't take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And that's the testimony of the Christian faith, isn't it? That we actively overcome evil with good. Whatever the world throws at us, we have something infinitely more valuable than everything else. In the kingdom of God, good abounds. And what better testimony to our changed lives than the fact that we actively seek the good of everyone, including those whom we consider our enemies. And think about the context during which Paul wrote these words. Christians were being persecuted, hung, stoned, crucified, thrown into burning oil, burned at the stake on a daily basis under the emperor Nero. If Paul can write these words during a time when Christians should be outraged over their persecution and mistreatment, I think we can love our enemies and pray for, the, pray for those who challenge us. Now, going back to my introduction, I don't want you to think that I'm, you know, I hate watching movies. In fact, I love movies. And one of my favorite movies of all time is this movie called Ben-Hur, all right? And it's basically a revenge thriller, essentially. There's some romance in there, but it's a story about justice and getting revenge. And it's kind of similar to Gladiator in that regard. But, but Judah Ben-Hur, he's played by Charlton Heston. He's this, this Jewish prince who's thrown into jail along with his mother and his sister by his childhood friend Masala for really no reason at all. And Ben-Hur eventually finds his way back to Masala and tries to get his revenge. And it culminates in this fantastic chariot race scene where Masala dies and Ben-Hur emerges victorious. But the interesting thing is that this all takes place parallel to the life of Jesus. And Ben-Hur actually has a few run-ins with Jesus during this movie. And after he defeats Masala, he goes to find his mother and his sister, who had both become lepers. And in a powerful scene, Ben-Hur's life intersects with Jesus when he sees Jesus by on the cross. And the rain that came down during that time heals his mother and sister. And after all this takes place, Ben-Hur, he has a conversation with, with Esther, who's sort of the, the love interest. And, and before in the movie, Esther, she was captivated by the message of Jesus. And she even tried to tell Ben-Hur early in the movie that Jesus says to love your enemies. Don't seek revenge. But now it was Ben-Hur who came to know Jesus and love Jesus at the end of this movie. And he says this. He says, almost at the moment he died, I heard him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, even then. And I felt his voice take the sword out of my hand. What will you do with the real Jesus? Is there a sword in your hand that you're clinging to? Think of how our Savior could have called down hellfire upon his enemies. But think of how much he loves us despite the fact that we don't always love him. What will you do with the real Jesus? Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you that you're a just God, but that you're also an unjust God. I pray that you'll give us a spirit of peace, a spirit of love, a spirit of joy. 
take any swords out of our hands that we have, Lord. I pray that you'll help us to love people who may not love us, Lord, and in a sense be great testimonies to the love that you have for us. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.